The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. I'll invite you this morning to take your Bibles and go to the book of Acts again. That sounds really loud all of a sudden. Uh, Acts chapter uh, 10, and we're going to read from verse 45 to 11 and verse 18. Acts 10, verse 45 to 11 and verse 18. The Word of God says that all this... Actually, verse 44. Sorry, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for those to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Now the apostles and brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren, sorry, these six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them also the same gift he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And we trust again that God will add blessing to the reading of his very precious word. 
So what is our text of Acts 10, verse 44 to eleven eighteen talking about? We've seen in Acts 10, verses 1 to 8, God's working in Cornelius' life to bring him to faith in Christ for salvation. We've seen in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 to 23, God's working in Peter to open his eyes to understand that God accepts all those who do what is right and fear him. That's faith and repentance, doing what's right. And in Acts 10, verses 34 to 43, as Peter spoke to Cornelius and his household, we heard of God's provision of salvation and a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the last verses, 44 to 48, we saw how the Spirit fell on the Gentiles. And in those last verses, we see how Peter ordered them to be baptized, seeing they had received the Holy Spirit. Well, obviously, word got back to Jerusalem and the believing Jews, the apostles and brethren there. They heard that Peter had gone into the Gentiles, and the Gentiles had received the word of God, which simply means they received the gospel, and that Peter had eaten with them. What's tremendously sad as you read the story is that rather than rejoicing that that God had saved the Gentiles, the Jews instead are critical of Peter's going and eating with Gentiles. They take issue. In effect, they demand an accounting from Peter. And so Peter patiently and in an orderly manner, he gives them an account and makes it clear. God has worked to save them. God had worked in Peter's heart to open his understanding that the Gentiles are included in God's people. Notice, in Peter's recounting, he emphasizes four tools, and I put them in your note sheet there, that God used to bring him to understand the full nature of God's purposes. First of all, in verses 5 through 10, there's a divine vision of one sheet containing all types of animals, including those made clean, together as one group, signifying the one body of Christ. Secondly, in verse 12, there's a divine command by the Holy Spirit to Peter to go without misgivings to the Gentiles' homes to speak with them. And thirdly, in verses 13 to 14, there was a divine preparation as Peter realized through talking to Cornelius, that God was already at work in Cornelius' life to prepare him to hear the gospel, just as he does in our lives. He's working in us to prepare to hear the gospel so that when we hear it, we can respond in faith and repentance as Cornelius and his friends do. Finally, fourthly, in verse 15, there's a divine action as the Holy Spirit fell on them with power, producing the unmistakable evidence of His presence through speaking in tongues, which is foreign languages. Now, the Jews, like Peter, must also be brought to see what Peter had already seen, that God accepts all who come in faith and repentance. And what's happened in Acts 10 is so significant that Dr. Luke who is himself a Gentile believer, repeats it all for emphasis in chapter 11. 
In fact, I took a spreadsheet and I put the two passages together and lined them up and just kind of paralleled it. And a lot of it is just parallel statements. But there's a few key statements that Luke adds in as Peter is speaking to the Jews. And the question, of course, is, what is the message of this text for us for today? Peter's recounting all the way through, makes it plain in both chapters that God is the one working to save his people, Jew and Gentile. In chapter 10, we see it's God who comes to Cornelius in verses 1 to 8 to send him, tell him to send for Peter. It's God who changed Peter's understanding in verses 9 to 23. It was God. It is God who does not show partiality and praise God he doesn't because none of us would be included. But we are. Praise God for that. Amen. It's God who sends word to the sons of Israel in verse 36, teaching the, the gospel of peace. It was God who anointed Jesus with his Holy Spirit in verse 38. It was God who accompanied Jesus through his ministry in verse 38. It was God who raised Jesus from the dead in verse 40. And it was God who appointed Jesus to be the judge of the living and dead in verse 42. And not only that, it was God who ordered the apostles and all those subsequent missionaries and witnesses beyond that to go out and preach Christ. It was God who poured out His Holy Spirit on the Gentiles in verse 44. Peter hadn't even finished his sermon. He hadn't even given the altar call if he was going to do that. And God was already at work. God was sending His Spirit. So Peter is saying to the believing Jews in Jerusalem that since God gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit, the same as He gave us, who is He to stand in God's way? In other words... Peter's explanation to the Jews in chapter 11 is that God is the one bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. God is the one displaying the reality of his saving them by pouring out his Holy Spirit on them. For Peter or any other Jew, any other person to resist preaching the gospel to the Gentiles would in fact to be to stand in opposition and disobedience to God. You know, as I compared the accounts, what I noticed was interesting was a few significant statements that Peter puts in. Actually, there's really only one, but it's two parts. In verses 16 and 17, he says, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord... Um, who was I that I should stand in God's way? In other words, he remembered partway through what was going on, and so he included that little bit in his recounting to the Jews. And what's significant for us is there are significant, important gifts from God that are part of that great salvation gift that God has given to all of us. There's two important gifts from the God in these texts. I'm going to add two more to kind of complete the picture. First of all, in chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, there's God's gift of baptism with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, in verse 18, there's God's gift of repentance. He granted to them repentance. Thirdly, we saw this last week from Ephesians 2, verse 8, there is the gift of faith in God. Fourthly, 
in verses 47 and 48, there is the gift of water baptism. Now, we considered belief and faith last week. So for today, we're just going to consider the other three. Look at what they have to say to us. So I'm going to use Acts chapter 11 as kind of a springboard to talk about those three things because they're rooted in our text. And I don't want to take time to repeat the stories all over again. We've been through that. So I want to pick out those uh, few points and expound on them. You say, why did, Peter, why did Luke repeat it twice? Why did he put it in there twice? He's only got so much space to write. Why take that much space to repeat the same story? And the point is, in good Hebrew literary style, you repeat things for emphasis. Samuel, Samuel. David, David. Abraham, Abraham. God spoke twice to emphasize something. And so he's emphasizing something that's extremely important. That's the Gentiles' inclusion in the people of God. So first of all, there is the gift of baptism with the Holy Spirit, and we see that in chapter 10, verses 44 and 45, and we see Peter talking about it in verse 17. Notice, first of all, what is this situation? What's this event here? Is this some sort of repeated Pentecost? And the simple reality is that the Spirit of God was poured out in a manner very similar to Acts chapter 2 and the Pentecost there. The Spirit was poured out to many people at one time with the accompanying sign of speaking in tongues or languages, just as it happened in Acts chapter 2. And it was for a very unique purpose. You say, what's that? Notice what happens as it happens in verse 45. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. It happened like that for the purpose, the sake of the believing Jews who are watching. The believing Jews saw what happened and they were amazed. The Gentiles had together en masse received the same gift of the Holy Spirit as they had. And the watching, believing Jews are now compelled to understand and realize that God had given the gospel and salvation and the Spirit to the Gentiles also. So what is baptism with the Holy Spirit? It is God's pouring out his giving of the Holy Spirit into the heart, the life, the soul of every individual believer as we come to faith in God and repentance of sin. Now, the order of events, how does it work? Faith, repentance, baptism, which one comes first? And my simple answer is they all happen somewhat simultaneously. There isn't a case where one comes and then sometime later another comes or we, we repent and we believe so that sometime later we'll receive the baptism of Spirit. That is not what Scripture teaches. It happens simultaneously. Okay? So, beloved, the pouring out of the Spirit is God's gift to us. And what an amazing gift it is. The Holy Spirit is promised and given to every true believer in Christ. Paul said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The gift of the Holy Spirit provides rich blessings for his saved recipients. God's gift of the Holy Spirit regenerates us or makes us alive. 
we who were dead in trespass and sins have been made alive in Christ. The Bible tells us in Titus 3 and verse 5 that he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 6 and verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. Regeneration is God's Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> God's Holy Spirit working within us to transform our spiritual condition from being dead and separated, ignorant and careless of God <clears throat> and His ways, to being alive, to being in Christ, to being reconciled to God, to relating to God through the Spirit, rejoicing in God and at peace with God. God's gift of the Holy Spirit, it seals us and sets us apart as belonging to Christ. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. The absolute guarantee that our future salvation... the absolute guarantee of our future salvation from God's wrath in hell, the the guarantee that we will inherit eternal life, the guarantee that we will one day be perfected is God's gift of His indwelling Holy Spirit in us. But there's even more. God's gift of the Holy Spirit mediates the presence of Christ to us. Jesus promised in Matthew 28 and verse 20 that He would never leave nor forsake us Now, since Jesus, truly God and truly man, is enthroned in heaven, how does he today keep that promise? How is it that Jesus is always with us, never leaves us, nor forsakes us? And the answer is, he keeps that promise in the indwelling spirit in us. John 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. Jesus, the Spirit of God is called the Spirit of Jesus in the book of Acts and other places. So God mediates the presence of Christ always with us, never leaving, never forsaking, in the indwelling person of the Spirit of God within. Jesus, Holy Spirit, mediates His abiding presence to us. What a great promise. What a great hope that we have, eh? That, that's a very Canadian thing, eh? <laughs> Sorry. I suddenly caught myself. I was like, I'm in Australia now, not Canada. You can't do that anymore. What a great promise that we have. His presence is always with, always with us. Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go. Something even better is coming. They had Jesus with them, amongst them, walking, talking, speaking. At times he would go off and do things and leave nine by themselves and just take three with them. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we have something. I'm not saying that the Spirit is better than the Son. Don't misunderstand. But we have something better than the physical presence of Christ with us. We have the Spirit of Christ indwelling us. Never leaves, never forsakes. And the wonderful thing is He ministers to us as we walk this Christian life. 
John 16, verses 13 and 15, the Spirit speaks to us. How does He speak? No, He doesn't babble in your ear. What He does is you open the Word of God and He starts to speak. It's amazing. You can pick up even books like Chronicles, which I I love the Bible, but I find the book of Chronicles and all those names somewhat hard to get through. All those begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. And you say, Lord, speak to me. And all of a sudden, there's a little verse will pop off the page. A little statement will just hit home. The Spirit of God speaks to us through His Word. In Romans 8, the Holy Spirit bears witness to us of our adoption by God as His sons and daughters. I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever who my physical parents are. I never once doubted that I was theirs. I am theirs. And by the same token, the Spirit of God bears witness in my heart that I belong to God. I belong to Christ. I can still remember that moment in the prayer time after a Bible study in camp 40 years ago next week, two weeks away, the first week of July in 1982, sitting there and praying and pleading with God to save me And when I got up from that Bible study, there was a conviction in my heart that I belong to God. That's the Spirit of God that does it to you. He bears witness to us in Romans 8. Also, the Spirit helps us and intercedes for us. You ever have those moments when you just don't know how to pray? Sitting in a hospital room, not recently, but other times, and you see someone in suffering and in pain, and you you don't know what to say, what to do. How do you help them? And you want to pray, but the words just don't seem to come. Or maybe you're feeling that moment when there's a spiritual darkness just kind of descends over you and you don't know how to respond to God. And all you can do is say, oh God, oh God. And nothing else comes. And the Spirit of God intercedes and takes those groanings deep within our heart, our soul, and lifts them up to God. And God understands. He reads that heart and He can respond in the meditating helping, soothing voice of the Spirit of God. He points us back to the Scriptures that can reinforce and strengthen our faith and help us to go another day, another hour, another step sometimes. God ministers and helps us through the Spirit. The Spirit of God in... uh, In Ephesians 1.17, Paul prays that we will receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation. One of the Spirit's works is to reveal and illumine the Scriptures to us for our understanding. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with doubts, first of all, I want you to know one thing. We all, at times, struggle with doubts. You cry out to God for help and you open the Word of God and it's amazing how the Spirit of God takes the rock-solid truths of Scripture and strips away our doubts with those rock-solid truths. The Spirit of God knows exactly what you're going through and He knows how to take those Scriptures and at just the right mind, right time, apply them to your heart. Listen. Listen as you, re- as you read. Listen as you pray. In 2 Corinthians 3 and Galatians 5, the Spirit is working to transform us through the ministry of the Word into mature, godly saints. Praise God for such a work. 
And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that pouring out of the Spirit into the believer as they come to faith and repentance and faith in God and repentance of sin and turning towards God. God pours out His Spirit and He's doing that work in us and that work carries on all through this life. You receive the Spirit of God once with great love and respect for our charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters There is no teaching in Scripture that matches up to two blessings or multiple blessings, multiple pourings out. It's just not in the Bible. There may come times when you all of a sudden experience a great burning in your heart. The only way, I know I've used the illustration before, and I apologize for repeating the same illustrations, but this one I just can't improve on it. It's kind of like you have a fire burning. The, the one fire is burning. The wood's there. The fire is there. The flames are there. And you lean down and you on the flames and knock all your sermon notes all over the place while you're doing it. And what happens? The flame all of a sudden flares up. You feel that sudden blast of heat. You see the light just grow. And all of a sudden, everything is put into shadows as the light shines so much brighter. And there are times in our Christian life when God leans down into your heart and goes, and the fire that's already there burns a little hotter and a little brighter. And you experience that sudden understanding of something a little deeper. There is a tremendous sense of peace of warmth, of the love of God in that moment as God breathes. But no, there is not two or multiple blessings, multiple pourings out. It's just not there, all right? Pardon the little detour. But the point for us is this. God saves sinners, Jews and Gentiles. God proves and displays His work by baptizing us with His Holy Spirit. And that's Peter's point to the believing Jews. He was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He didn't even get finished and God poured out His Holy Spirit. And they had stand back in amazement and wonder as they saw the Spirit of God filling those Gentiles. And they began to exalt God in their own language or in the the tongues they were speaking. And they recognized that the Gentiles had been filled with the Spirit. They were saved. And beloved, I tell you on the authority of Scripture, if you're truly saved, then you are indeed truly filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit, He will manifest His presence in you. So how do I know? How do I truly know deep in my own soul that the Spirit of God is there? There will be an inner unshakable heart conviction, I belong to God. There will be an inner sense of being alive, truly and unmistakably alive. It's amazing when I came up, up off that bed and I went outside, all of a sudden it's like the, you know, the lights got switched on or the whole world went from black and white to color. You know? It didn't really change, but all of a sudden I realized I'm alive. And all of a sudden, instead of running away from Bible reading, I couldn't wait to get finished playing hockey and football and soccer. And yes, I did really play those sports when I was young. And get back to my bed and open my Bible and start reading again because all of a sudden, it was making sense. It was like instead of reading Swahili on a page, I was reading English. And it all made sense or was making sense. There will be a sense 
an indescribable sense of peace with God. I have read missionary story and preacher biography and pastor biography and missionary biography one after the other, and all of them describe their coming to Christ in that same sense. There was a sense of peace within that they'd never experienced before. That's the Spirit of God testifying to your heart. There'll be joy No matter what comes your way, nothing can truly suppress and remove that joy. Yes, there will be times of sorrow. But as Paul describes it, we will be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Rejoicing in joy is not a happy, giddy thing. Joy is that deep-rooted peace. The deep-rooted... Joy is the only word for it. But it doesn't come without sorrowing. It's like when we go to the grave of a Christian brother or sister or in months to come, two of our Christian sisters. Unless God intervenes, and we certainly hope and pray that he does. But if not, we will go to a graveside and we will stand there and the tears will run down our cheeks and we will sing with joy standing on the promises of God because we have the great hope and the great promise of Scripture that we will see them again. He will give us joy in those moments, though the tears may run down. How do you know? As time passes, you'll notice your reactions and responses will be changing. What once used to arouse seething anger is now met with patience that you can't describe. And it makes no sense to you. What once was met with anger is now met with love. What the love that you once had only for friends and family will now extend even to those who hurt and abuse you and your friends and your family. The the fruit of the spirit of love is not a love you can generate by yourself. You don't go home this week and take all the fruit, fruit, singular, not plural, Take all those fruit and try and work on love this week and joy next week and patience the week after. And, that, and it doesn't work like that. It's one spirit that produces all those different fruit. The evidence of, of the spirit of God within you is being produced as you respond, as he works on your life and changes you through the ministry of the word of God and through prayer. And all of a sudden, the responses that were so fleshly and so natural will fade and disappear. And what will come in their place is responses that will seem at times almost unexplainable to you. That's how you know. If you're struggling with that, please come and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about it and help you through it. Beloved, is that our experience? Have we received the gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It's not secondary or subsequent to faith. It comes before and produces faith in God. Is that your experience of God's gift of the Holy Spirit in your life? One unmistakable mark of true conversion. It's not if you go to church. It's not if you can read a Bible. It's not if you stop swearing, smoking, and hanging out with people to do. The unmistakable mark of true conversion is the presence of the Holy Spirit of God within you. And so I ask the question, is that your experience? Is that our experience? Secondly, we receive the promised gift of repentance. God saved the Gentiles in Peter's day, and no doubt as he stayed with them for a short time, he was able to see the evidence of that repentance that the Jews now recognize as God's gift to them. God saved us and gave us the gift of repentance as he did so. 
It's a gift of God, just as faith is a gift from God. In Acts 5.31, it says that Christ is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Similarly, in our text, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. In Acts 11.18. So what is repentance? Immediately, some will say, it's turning around and going the other way. And you're right. It is, but it's so much more than that. That's a very boiled down, very simplified understanding of it. I want to increase our understanding of what repentance is. Repentance is to recognize God's demand of holiness and moral perfection on me as my conscience and God's law dictates and describes His demands. It's a realization of my utter failure to meet God's demands. And repentance is to be exceedingly sorrowful over my sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes I I hear stories of conversion. And I just, maybe I have an untrusting nature or something, but something inside me just says, I'm concerned about that. Because I hear it's just a happy flip of a switch. Yeah, I did this. I came to Christ. Everything's great. Da, 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 da. And I think, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Repentance is to be exceedingly sorrowful over my sin. Just like Peter, as Jesus turned that moment and he's been taken away and Peter's by the fireside and Peter has just denied him three times and Jesus turns and gazes at him across the firelight. And Peter's conscience convicted him greatly. And he went outside and the Bible says he wept bitterly. He had denied his Lord. He was exceedingly sorrowful over sin. Repentance is to be exceedingly sorrowful. But not merely for my ruined condition. That's what happens. You know, we start to feel so bad because my life is so messed up because of all the sin I've committed. But it's not just that. Repentance is to be exceedingly sorrowful because my sin has offended God. We're so self-centered, brothers and sisters, that all we see is how it affects me or maybe how it affects me and my wife or maybe me and my wife and my kids and just those close to me. But you know, the greatest effect that sin has isn't you. It offends God. Repentance is to recognize and judge myself as truly sinful before God and deserving of God's complete condemnation. If you believe that God saved you because you deserve to be saved, you've missed the point entirely. God saved you, brother and sister, not because you deserved it, but because God is so gracious to save those who don't deserve it. And hearing the gospel in that moment, understanding our own sinful condition, understanding and agreeing entirely with God that he would be absolutely just to throw me in the bottom of hell, slam the door, lock it and throw away the key. But In that moment, we hear the gospel. We hear that God's grace and God's kindness and God's love and God's mercy and God's forgiveness is all there available to us because Jesus died. And we flee to God in faith for God to save us. It's kind of like when Peter, you know, they're on the boat and they're fishing. And someone said, hey, there's a guy on the shore. 
And Peter looked around and they saw this figure on the shore and there was a fire and smoke was rising and someone said, it's the Lord. And Peter, God bless him, foot and mouth, stumbling, bumbling guy, throws off this, throws that on, dives over the edge of the boat and he's swimming for all his might. He can't wait for the boat to get there. He would have gotten there dry and fine if he had just waited for 10 minutes. But no, he's so anxious, so eager to get back to the Lord, to see him again to hear those words of kindness and love and forgiveness, and he flees to Christ. That's what he wants more than anything else. And repentance is recognizing God's just condemnation and fleeing to God for salvation. Repentance is to live from then on with a God-given radical change of heart and spirit and mind and will, and it's a gift because we can't do that ourselves. But God, when he makes us alive, changes everything inside. He gives us new desires, new loves, new passions. He gives us a new will, a new mind that wants to know God and know the people of God, a new heart that wants to serve God and love God and be with God all the time. And you can't do that. That's God's work in you. But we cooperate with it and we begin to grow in our faith. It's to live in submission to God's word and God's will. It's to live from then on with a holy resolve, a godly determination that by God's enabling Holy Spirit, I will have nothing to do with sin lest I offend God again. And when you do sin, and yes, you will, there is a deep groaning in your soul. What have I done? And there's a sorrow again inside. But praise God for the restoring grace of God. Like Jesus who said to Peter, Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you, you know all things. You know I love you. He didn't try and hide what he'd done. He didn't try and escape from it. He just said, Lord, you know, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know. And he recommissioned him, put him back to work again. And Peter went on to, to preach and teach and suffer and ultimately die for his faith in Christ, refusing ever again to deny Jesus. The wonderful thing about repentance is it doesn't just happen once. It's a whole life of being changed inside out, turning away from sin and turning toward God. And repentance and faith cannot be separated from each other. They are, in effect, two sides of the same coin of salvation. By faith in God, we repent. We come repenting, trusting that God will receive us. There's faith involved. And in repenting, we believe and trust in God. John 3, verse 16, that great Bible verse that we all know so well, that whosoever believes in him will not, what? Perish, right? You believe, you won't perish. What else did Jesus say? Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. Twice he said it in two verses. Unless you repent, you will perish. In other words, repentance results in not perishing and believing results in not perishing. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't split them apart. The whole idea that we can trust Christ one day and repent of sin at our leisure some other time is totally unbiblical. Oh, but now you're being saved by works if you add repentance in there. That's a work. No, it's not. Because you can't repent unless the Spirit of God is at work in you to change you. 
It takes the work of God. What's the Bible say? Can a leper change its spots? Can, can a koala become a, a kangaroo? No. Can you and I change our wicked, ungodly hearts to a godly heart that loves God? No, but God can do it for us. Repentance is a gift of God which we receive and we live responding to that gift. And that's the point to all this. Peter's point to the Jews is that God saves sinners, both Jew and Gentile, and he displayed the reality of that salvation by the gift of baptism with the Spirit and the gift of repentance. God's salvation gifts are those, baptism with the Spirit, faith in God, repentance of sin, and to God. All three are evidences of God's work to save us. So, brother and sister, my friend sitting here this morning, do you and I see that work of God in our own lives? God gives you a tremendous gift. Just to use an example, there's a piano sitting right there, so use that. God gives you a gift of ability to play the piano, kind of like Edward can, right? Amazing. And when he sits down at the keys and he begins to play, all of a sudden the evidence of the gift he's been given comes flowing out of the back of that piano. It produces an effect. And so when you and I have received the gifts of salvation, that the evidence of those gifts within us manifests itself. The Spirit of God in us changes us. Repentance that we have received changes us. And we display God's work by the receiving of those gifts and living in light of them. We often talk about salvation as coming to the Lord God, coming to love God. That's a great thing. Here's a different question, a difficult one. You love God. Wonderful. Do you hate sin? Do I see my sin as just what ruins me or do I see it as what offends God and grieve over that as much as the other? Is there within me, within us, a deep, profound sorrow for sin? Is there within us a craving to be rid of sin, to no longer give in to it because we recognize that every sin we commit, Christ must pay for? Is there, beloved, within our hearts, a desire to live godly, pleasing lives before God? That's the question to ask and answer. Yes, of course, we ask the question, do you love God? Do you trust God? But do you hate sin at the same time? Thirdly, last one. There is a gift of water baptism. In verse 17, Peter asks the question, who can stand in God's way? In verses 46 and 47, chapter 10, he asks, Who can refuse water for the baptism of those who have received the Holy Spirit? Now, notice that baptism in water followed the receiving of the Holy Spirit. So God bless our dear brothers and sisters in the faith who see infant baptism and all of that. I have some great, wonderful, loving Christian brothers who see it that way. And with respect, I disagree. Why? In a lot of part for this verse. Why? Because the receiving of the Spirit of God precedes water baptism. Doesn't follow it some 10, 15, whatever years later. It happens before. It's also with love and respect for our brothers and sisters who see baptism as a sprinkle. The word baptizo means to immerse. 
place under. So it means to go under the water, just as Christ went into the ground to be buried, to rise again. And Peter's questions, sorry, notice in Peter's language, there's not an invitation, a discussion about whether or not one wanted to be baptized. Those who believed were baptized. They received it. They received it as a gift, a tremendous gift. We're going to see why it's a gift in a second. They obeyed the command to be baptized. And Peter's question was directed at his fellow Jews in terms of them hindering or refusing or preventing these Gentiles from being baptized. So what is the significance of baptism? Why is it we have a baptismal tank over there? Why do I love it? When the water is extra cold and a little murky and going down in there to baptize somebody. I'm only saying that for, for humor because one baptism we had at the water somehow didn't get very hot and it was so cold you could barely stand to be in there. Why do we do it? Why is it so significant? Why do we want our young people, why do we want believers in Christ to be baptized? Well, baptism signifies union with Christ in his redemptive acts. In Galatians 3, Paul speaks of our being clothed with Christ. It pictures our putting off the old clothes to go into baptism and then coming out and putting on new clothes, signifying a new union, a new identity. In Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29, Paul writes, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Romans 6. The great passage on life and death and baptism talks about this. Paul describes how we're united with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and so we participate in the new creation in Christ. Baptism signifies our renewal by the Holy Spirit. Union with Christ is inconceivable apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And just as we're baptized with the Holy Spirit spiritually, so we are physically baptized in water to display and picture that great truth of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Baptism, more than that, it signifies entrance into the kingdom of God. The salvation provided by Christ is none other than the new life under the saving sovereignty of God in Christ who is our King. The moment of our conversion, we are in submission to Christ as Lord and God and King. I could give you a whole pile of references and statements about Christ being shown to be the King all through the Gospels. Our baptism signifies to all watching that we've been transferred by God into Christ's kingdom. The Bible says, Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, For He, that's God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. Baptism signifies our entrance into the kingdom. It signifies our union with Christ's body and the church. Way back at the beginning, 
uh, before I began preaching, I thanked the church for their love, their family-like response to us in the last couple of days. We are part of the body of Christ. We're part of the family at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. The reason why we baptize people in the context of a church and a church service is because that baptismal tank signifies our union, our fastening together, not only in the universal body of the church, which is every believer in all times and places, but it also signifies that our union, our being joined together as brothers and sisters in this little local family. People say, where do you go to church? Or I get asked, you know, where am I pastoring? Where do I go to church? Noble Park Evangelical Baptist. That's my home. This is my family. For us, with family, you know, 9,000 kilometers on the bottom of the world, because Oz, Oz is obviously on the top, uh, really, you guys are our family. The reality is that baptism signifies our being part of Christ's body together. We're one. We're united with all those who are united to him. You will be my brothers and sisters in Christ, not just for time, sorry, but you'll be there for all eternity. Can't get away from me, <laughs> right? We're going to be together for all eternity as brothers and sisters. And baptism, dying to self, buried with Christ, raised to walk in a newness of life as brothers and sisters, that's what describes and portrays it. It's a tremendous blessing to be baptized. We all have the same faith as Abraham, and we're all sons of daughters of Abraham, united together, as Paul says, in the son of Abraham, who is Christ. Listen, just as you're saved and filled with the Spirit and a member of Christ's body, so am I. And baptism signifies our union, our fellowship with each other as brothers and sisters. And it signifies beyond all that, our lives not beyond all that, alongside of that. Our lives being lived in obedience to the rule of God. In Romans 6 and verse 4, we were buried with Him through baptism in order that we may too live a new life. In Romans 6, 15 and 19, we were brought out from slavery to sin and we have been brought into slavery to obedience. Brother and sister in Christ, congratulations. You just found out you're all slaves to righteousness, not to sin, but to righteousness. We've been brought into a unique and tremendous privilege of that type of slavery. One of the great problems in our day and age is the rise of the idea that we've been saved from God's wrath in hell, from sin and from death, so that we can now live our lives as free men and women deciding for ourselves our own course of action, our own direction, and that simply isn't true. Here's one will knock your socks off. Christianity is not a democracy. It's a monarchy. And you're not king. Christ is. Amen. It's not a democracy, folks. We're not the king. Christ is king and Lord and master and savior. And the problem is those words roll off our tongue just like they rolled off mine just two seconds ago. He's my Lord. He's my master. He's my savior. I do what I want. It doesn't make sense. It's completely illogical. 
Christianity is not a democracy, it's a monarchy. It just so happens that being a slave to righteousness brings us into unknown heights of joy, blessing, and fulfillment as we obey. Years ago, dear old Grandpa Biggs, he was another one of those guys in my life, the old man who taught me a little bit about studying and a lot about preaching. He said, salvation is to set you free to serve, to submit, to follow and obey Christ. It doesn't set you free to live any way you like. That's totally the wrong idea. Baptism is not a decision that we get to make. Baptism is a command we are to obey. Baptism is God's gracious gift whereby we can make known to everybody watching the greatest piece of news that we can display. You know what it is? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind to the glories of God in Christ, but now... Through the work of the Spirit of God in me, I can see the glory of Christ. I once was enslaved to the evil taskmaster of my own sin, but now I'm free and under new ownership and new lordship, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And so I submit myself to be bent under that water and lifted up again to walk in newness of life. It doesn't happen. The new life doesn't happen as you climb out of that tank. The new life is already happening. That tank just pictures what's already happening inside. We're all Baptists. We understand this probably better than most, not to add to our pride. But we understand that. But brothers and sisters, I would dare to make the the proposition that we understand it, but we don't understand it, meaning we don't do it. We get the truth of it, but it hasn't changed our lives. You see, all of this, this whole idea of conversion and salvation is not a momentary thing where just something happens and your eternity is secure so you can carry on doing whatever you want. The whole idea of salvation is, yes, you are justified in a moment, but that whole life of salvation carries on through the rest of your days. And it will, it must affect every corner and every nook and cranny of my life. Brothers and sisters, I'm right alongside of you. There are days this week where I drove home groaning and lamenting sin. God is still working on me and God is still working on you and God is still bringing you along that path. But it involves obedience. And at the end of the day, obedience is simply submitting to God's will in my life. So, beloved, let me ask you the questions. Have you received God's gracious gifts of salvation? Christ died on a cross to purchase that salvation. Christ rose again to provide our justification. He sent his messengers like Peter and Paul and my wonderful friend Larry who declared declared to me the gospel of Christ when I believed. Christ has opened our hearts to understand the gospel message. And these questions I want you to think about. Please think about this. Have you grieved over your sin and the offense it causes God? Have you come to Christ in submission to Him? Submission. Placing yourself under His authority. Have you received that gift of repentance whereby you hate your sin and turn to God and flee to Him for salvation? 
And have you received that precious gift of faith, trusting in Christ alone to save you, for you have no other hope of salvation? And this doesn't come after. It's part of the whole process. Have you received that tremendous gift of the Holy Spirit, filling and indwelling and empowering and transforming you from sinner to saint? And brother and sister in Christ, have you taken that step over there of being baptized to declare with exceeding joy that you belong to Christ? God saved us with a tremendous salvation. We have a great Savior. Amen. We have tremendous gifts of salvation that we are to enjoy and live in light of for the rest of our lives. But it's not like a drudge or a dirge or a problem. It's joy that we enjoy those, with joy that we enjoy those things, right? All right, we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing another hymn before we uh, go to the Lord's table. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come again. And Father, we stand here in a sense like Isaiah was standing in the temple after that coal had touched his lips. His sin had been purged and taken away and he had found forgiveness with you. And Father, for those of us standing here this morning, we know that tremendous joy of forgiveness with God, of peace with God, of joy in the Holy Spirit, even though there are times of sorrow. We know that tremendous gift of grieving over sin, but the tremendous joy of knowing forgiveness of it as well. Loving Father, we cry out to you this morning that you would continue that work in each of us, that our lives would not be moments of repentance, but lifelong repentance. Father, we cry out to you for more faith. We cry out to you, O God, to strengthen our faith. Father, for those standing here before or in this church, Father, we ask you that you would minister to each according to their needs. For those who are standing here grieving and sorrowing and feeling that darkness over them, Father, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, you would blow that darkness away, that they would see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Father, we cry out to you for a great work of your Spirit in all of us. Father, we thank you. We praise you, O God, for that time, that moment when we were filled with the Spirit. And Father, we give thanks that he will never leave us or forsake us. He is indeed mediating your presence to us. Father, we give thanks that there are moments in this walk of faith and we feel that that love more deeply we sense that light of biblical truth more brightly father we ask you that we would indeed as paul says in ephesians 5:18 to be filled with the spirit father we ask you for a great work in this church father we pray that you would bring revival Father, we pray that there would be a great deepening 
of our love for you and our love for each other. Father, we pray also that there would be a great deepening of our fear, our reverence, and our respect, and our awe at the person of God. Father, we ask you for all these things, and we give thanks, O God, for our time in the Word together, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.